All right. Um, you guys know that the Old Testament is primarily a story about Israel and God's relationship with Israel. And God gave them uh, a series of regulations by which they would live in, in a right relationship with him. And uh, throughout Jewish history in the Old Testament, some of Israel remained faithful. Uh, from the time of Abraham on, there was always a remnant of faithful Israel. Uh, you see it in David. You see it in others who came after him. You see it in people who came before him. There was always a faithful remnant. But what is clear as you read the Old Testament is that they were the minority. They were the true minority. Um, there were very few proportionately who were faithful to the Lord. Many were unfaithful. And of those ones that were unfaithful, um, they used the ceremony and they used the ceremonial law that God gave them as a shield, as a way of keeping from all others what was truly in their heart. In other words, they lived the outward expression of what it meant to be a follower of God, follower of Yahweh. Uh, but inside their hearts were running from God. So this morning we're going to take a look at what God says to those people. So if you have your Bibles, will you turn to Psalm 51? Turn to Psalm 51 and then turn one to the left to Psalm 50. We want Psalm 50 this morning. All right, we're off to a good start. Psalm 50. And in this context, God is presenting himself as the judge. God in the first several verses is summoning Israel to himself. He's calling them to himself. And he's saying, I want you to stand before me. We'll drop down to verse 7. He says, Hear my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices, and your burnt offerings are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house, nor male goats, out of your folds. For every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world is mine and all it contains. Shall I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of male goats? God is telling Israel, I don't need anything from you. I'm not completed by you. I'm not dependent on you in any way. I'm not like you. I don't have ongoing recurring needs for my sustenance. I'm eternal and you're not. I'm not like you. I don't get hungry. I don't have needs. <coughs> Israel is bringing all of these sacrifices before God. The, the ones that are doing so only outwardly are, are bringing these sacrifices as if they're adding to God in, in some way. And God says to them, that's not the way I am. That's not who I am. I don't need these things. He says, this is what I want from you. Let's look at verses, verse 14. Verse 14, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and pay your vows to the Most High. When we give thanks for something, it's because we're giving thanks for something that's given to us, for something that has been presented to us. True thanks is given for something that is beyond our own ability to acquire by ourselves. So when we come before the Lord, when we come before him over his word, when we come before him in prayer, we want to come before him with thanksgiving because of what he has done for us. Um, we are not adding to him. 
He is not completed by our praise and our thanksgiving to him, even though it is right and it is good for us to give those things to him. When we come before the Lord, we need to come before the Lord with a, a countenance that says, I'm the one who needs you. I need you here. And I'm giving you thanks for what you have done for me. And so when we close our eyes and we pray, it is good for us to remember what God has done for us. Come before him humbly. Uh, The rest of the psalm, he spends itemizing a list of things that Israel does in their sinful practice. And you read them and they're horrible. Um, And at the end of the, the psalm, he says again, he who offers a sacrifice of thanksgiving is the one who honors me. And to him who orders his way aright, I shall show the salvation of God. The people of God are people who are thankful to God because they understand what God has done for them, what God has given them. So this morning, as we talk about the disciplines, I just want to set one thing before you. That is that when you come before the Lord, remember that that he is not completed by anything that we bring to him. He enjoys our fellowship. He enjoys communion with us. It is pleasant and it is good. But we need to have the humble, thankful mindset that I am the one who needs you. Um, You are not benefiting from me in any way. So let's just keep that before ourselves this morning. Uh, Let's remember the disciplines of build that we're men who care for our hearts first and foremost. When we meet with the Lord, we do so in a way that is honoring and pleasing. Uh, We meet with him in times of prayer and times of reading his word. We're men who care for our own households well, whether we live with nobody else or we live with a whole group of other people. Um, We take the fruit of what our own heart shepherding looks like and we bring it to bear on those who live with us. And then we bring the fruit of those two things into this place as we come together, ready to care for one another, ready to listen to one another. We're men who love to be a part of the ministry that God is at work doing. We want to be men who, as a part of shepherding our hearts, grow in our qualification to serve. We've formalized that in many ways here. Deacon service is one of the things. We'll be talking about that in six weeks here. We want to be men who aim at the deacon qualifications being a guy who says, you know, I don't have any vices other than my vice for Christ. And um, I'm a one-woman man. I'm very satisfied with the life God has given me. And I have one message with my mouth. I'm I'm not double-tongued. We want to be guys who continually aim for that. That's what makes this church a strong church. Lastly, we want to be guys who are always seeking to grow in our understanding of the word. And it starts, of course, with the way we shepherd our heart, but it moves through to different opportunities we have here and and build is one of those. Thanks again for coming. So uh, let's do this. Let's pray. Let's pray for our time together. After I pray, we will break up into our groups. Okay. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the truth of it. Thank you for what you have done for us. Again, I pray for these men and for what they have done Lord, to be here, to make themselves ready. Lord, I thank you for the power of your word in their lives. I pray for each one of them as they go to their discussion groups. Lord, I pray that it would be a sweet and a rich time. Father, I also just lay before you Scott Maxwell. Thank you so much for him and for his tireless service to this church. Lord, we all are blessed by his wisdom that he has gleaned from your word and time spent alone with you. We're blessed by his teaching. We're blessed by fellowship with him. Lord, I know that he is sick. I know that he's weak right now, and I pray that you would strengthen him. I pray as well for those who are heading to Romania right now. Lord, I pray for your grace to all of them. I pray especially for Derek, that you would allow him to lead well, 
that you would give him your grace to sense what you are doing and where you are leading, to provide words of wisdom, to provide words of encouragement, or to point each one of those people, those kids and those adults to you when things are uncertain. All right, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Well, we're in the body of Christ, and part of being in the body of Christ is living in relationship with one another. And our lives are filled with relationships. Whether we have a lot of relationships or we have just a few of them, um, we are in relationship with other people. And those relationships are um, with people who, if they're believers, they are in a mixed condition. And that means that from time to time, those people are going to demonstrate different things. One of the things that they will demonstrate is uh, that they may find themselves being an unruly person. They may find themselves to be faint-hearted, and they may find themselves to be weak. And my heart for this conversation this morning is that we would grow in our understanding of how it is that the body is to care for the one who is unruly, how the body is to care for the one who is faint-hearted, and how the body is to care for one another when a person is weak. So we're going to see that in uh, Paul's relationship with the church in Thessalonica. I think it would be good for us just to understand a little bit about the context here. We're going to look at one and one verse only, but it's really important to understand where that verse sits. So to do that, we want to back out and see how it was that Paul came to know the church in Thessalonica. Paul came to Thessalonica on his second missionary journey. After he returned from his first missionary journey to Antioch in uh, Acts, we read that Paul and, and Silas decided that what they would do is they would retrace their steps through what is present-day Turkey on where they went on their first missionary journey. And their point in doing that is to strengthen the churches that were established on their first missionary journey. So they did that. They went into Turkey and they strengthened the church in Lystra and the church in Derby and other places as well. And from there they moved west across the Aegean Sea into present-day Greece. And in Acts chapter 17 you read the story of how Paul and Silas came to Philippi first. And the Lord gave them his grace and a church was born there and the church grew there and much persecution arose. And so Paul and Silas and his traveling companions left Philippi and they went to Thessalonica. And Paul was there for at least three Sabbaths, which means he was probably there for sometime around a month. And by God's grace, he planted a church there as well. This is a very, very young church. This is a church that was only a month old. Persecution followed them from Philippi, and it grew up in that church, and such to the point that Paul had to leave. Paul and his traveling companions left the persecution in, in Thessalonica, and they moved down to Berea, and the persecution followed them there, and Paul left on his own, and he went down to Athens. And then from Athens, he moved on to Corinth, and Corinth is where he was when he wrote the letter of 1 Thessalonians. And so he writes to them, and he wants to find out how they're doing because he truly loved these people in the Lord. And he wanted to know how they were doing in the midst of all of this persecution. So, so the letter really is, is separated into two halves. There's, there's one thought that Paul has, and it's his thoughts for the Thessalonians. He's delighted at the newfound faith. He's delighted at their reputation. When you read chapter 1, he's thrilled that the reputation that they have has gone out throughout the Mediterranean region. And he's thrilled with that. He's thrilled to find out that they are faithful 
Timothy was sent back to them to see how they're doing. Timothy goes, checks on how they're doing. He comes back and reports to Paul that things are going really, really well. Today, all of that would have been done with a text. (laughs) But back then, it was a journey for Timothy to go there, find out how things are, and then journey back. Um, And Timothy brought back a really good report. These guys are doing well. So the first half of the letter, chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul is talking to them, and he is telling them how overjoyed he is and how well they're doing. Um, He finds out that they are (coughs) bearing up very well under the circumstances, and they're using God's grace to do it. The second half of the letter is instructions. A lot like a lot of other Paul's letters, you see instructions for godly living in the second half of the letter. And so if you look at chapter 4, he starts by talking about the importance of purity in personal relationships. After he talks about purity through verse 8, he talks in verses 9 through 12 about the disciplined life that a believer needs to live. He spends the rest of chapter 4 with instructions on the rapture and what the rapture is like. Um, The body was was wondering what it was like for people who fell asleep in Christ and who died in Christ. So Paul gave them good instruction on that. In chapter 5, he talks to them the first 11 verses about the day of the Lord. He talks to them about what that would entail, what was involved in all of that. He wanted them to understand that there is victory coming, that there is a day when God will, will establish judgment over everybody on earth. And then he talks to them about the way in which they should relate to elders and the leadership of their church, starting in verse 12. And then he he addresses a bunch of personal instructions, starting in verse 16 through the remainder of the chapter. And in the midst of all of that, in verse 14, is his instructions on how to care for one another in the body. So that's what we're going to look at today. So that's the context where this letter sits. We're going to look at the instruction that they are to admonish the unruly, they are to encourage the faint-hearted, and they are to help the weak. And after doing all of that, they're to be patient with everybody. So that's God's design for them, and that is also God's design for us. So let's pray and ask God to help us, and we'll go from there. <clears throat> Father, again, I thank you for this opportunity to stand here. I thank you for the privilege of looking into your word Lord, we know that there is nothing special about my words. We know there is nothing special about our own thoughts. Lord, we desperately need your Holy Spirit to equip each one of us. Lord, I pray that you would be the one who communicates this morning, that you would communicate to all of us the things that we need to know, how to care for one another in this body. Again, Lord, we are thankful that you sent your Son to die for us so that we could be rescued away from our sin and be released from our sin and drawn into the body of Christ. And I pray that you would inform us and you would teach us from your word, and that we would be men who are well-equipped to care for one another. And I pray it in Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're going to look at first, admonishing the unruly. So if you have your notes, um, we're looking at admonishing the unruly. Again, this is a a young church. This is a, a church that has young believers in it just a couple of months old. This is a very, very young church, a church that that does not have a lot of history behind them at all, and Paul is writing to them. And there is a problem with idleness in this church. It doesn't tell us how Paul came to know about this, but there is a problem with idleness. One of the things that Paul had taught them when he was there with them was that they are people who are going to one day be raptured away from this world 
an intimate relationship with Christ, but they didn't have a lot of detail on how that was going to work. So there was an issue with idleness and easiness of life. There were, there were those who were just waiting for the next age to come. Look at uh, chapter 4, verse 10. We urge you, brethren, make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. Attend to your own business and work with your hands, just as we had commanded you. Paul needed to give that instruction. He needed to give that instruction because there were those there who were idle. If you're using the ESV this morning, you can see that they actually use the word idle in place of unruly. Let's take a look at what this means. Um, This is a problem that, that persisted in the church. It was so bad that Paul had to address it in his second letter, which he wrote a few years later. 2 Thessalonians 3, uh, verses 6 and following. In verse 6, he says, Keep away from every brother who leads an unruly life. In verse 6. In verse 11, he writes, We hear that some among you are leading an undisciplined life, doing no work at all, but acting like busybodies. So idleness was a problem in the church. So first, let's take a look at what it means to be idle or what it means to be unruly. The Greek word here means something that has deviated from the prescribed order or rule. So the unruly one is someone who has deviated from a prescribed order or rule. This is a person who has advanced beyond a position of safety, and they're now in a position of danger. This is a military term. It's a term that was used to describe military positions. And when a person was unruly, they were a person who had advanced beyond the clear guidelines for where they were supposed to be. And they were in a position of risk and danger. It's important to know that this is inherent in the person's character. It's part of who they are. There's somebody who likes to advance beyond the guidelines, advance beyond the lines that have been set forth before them. Their pattern of life, at least in this area, is to wander outside of the authority that's placed over them. They want to live without rules. They want to live above the rules, beyond the rules. The natural course of their mind is to retain freedom in any way possible. It's just not part of their thinking to submit themselves to a rule or an order. You know when you get sick and you go to the pharmacist, you come back with some medication. I did this last week. I came back from the the pharmacist, and they've got the medication, and it's really good. Well, it has two things. It has a dosage, and it has an interval that you take your medication on, right? Um, And any parent knows this when they're giving medication to their child. You follow the prescribed order and rule, and things generally work well. You don't just take the medication home and take it at your own schedule and your own quantities. There's a prescription there. And that's the idea here that we have. This is a person who has no desire whatsoever to stay within the prescribed order or rule. And actually what this person needs is they need to have thoughts added to them about the need to stay within this order or rule because they don't have those thoughts within them at the present time. And that's actually what the word admonishment is. It's a compound word in the Greek, and it means to place in the mind. So to admonish is to place a warning in the mind. It's to speak a warning into the mind of a person. And again, the reason why you're doing that is because that warning is not presently in the mind of that person. 
So that's what it means to admonish. It means you need to speak a warning into that person's mind because their mind is lacking that in the first place. This is not a a soft-hearted plea or a gentle appeal. This is a stern warning. This is an exhortation. It says, you really, really need this. I'm not coming to you in the fullness of all of my strength and all of my vigor. I'm just telling you, it's my observation after seeing you and praying about this and looking at you that you truly need this because this thought, this worldview, this mindset is not within you right now. This is a reproof, and it aims at doing two things. It shows them, one, that this is sinful. This is clearly beyond God's design. It's beyond God's order for you. And secondly, it points them to a clear path of repentance. You don't just go to somebody and say, here's your admonishment, I'll see you. You go to them and you say, look, I clearly see this. It appears to me that this is what the case really is, and I want to help you walk away from that. Let's have a a time where we consider some examples of what a person who is unruly might look like. It might be the guy who is always complaining about the tasks that he has to do at work. He comes home, he's talking to his wife, he's talking to his household, and he's complaining about his job every day. Here's the unruliness. God's design is you work as unto the Lord. You work with joy, you work with gladness, you work with happiness as unto the Lord. You work diligently regardless of your circumstances. The unruly one is the one who seems to believe it's okay to complain or to be bitter about their work circumstance. It could be a friend who continues to ignore biblical principles in some area of their life despite encouragements from all their brothers not to live that way. It could be a sheep who's just consistently difficult to shepherd. They're so difficult to shepherd that, um, and they're so unteachable that they're, their place in the church is a grief to the elders who shepherd over them. The focus here is on the kind of person that a person is. It's a person who, again, just keeps stepping outside of the lines that God has prescribed for the way we should live. Let's talk about what kind of person it is not. It's not the person who is, has proven and demonstrated that they're a faithful person before the Lord and they have stumbled into some sins. It's not that person. Paul's not writing here about the person who has recently stumbled across some sin and is is walking through repentance to that. Um, He's not talking about that person. He's talking about a person who characteristically, what is true about them is they love to live beyond God's prescribed order for them. So when we admonish somebody and when we go to speak something into their mind, we want to keep some principles in front of us as to how it is that we can actually admonish somebody well. So what we need to do is we need to think carefully about ourselves before we go to a person. And I have six things that I want to share with you that Scripture helps us understand what must remain true about us before we go uh, admonish somebody else. And I hope that uh, each one of these will have a Bible verse with them, so jot down a few words that summarize the principle, but keep the reference right in front of you. First thing you want to understand is remember who you were before God saved you. That puts you in a position of humility. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, every believer should know those verses by heart. They should make it their aim to have the the truths that are contained in that, that passage well within their heart. Remember that you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you formerly walked. It was an active walk against God, one in which you were 
um, walking according to the course of this world by the spirit who's working in the sons of disobedience. You were by nature a child of wrath and you didn't know it. You lived in the lusts of your flesh. Remember that that's the kind of person that you were before God saved you. That keeps you humble when you go to the person. Because when you see somebody who's, who's gone beyond God's design for them in an area where you're doing fairly well, it's tempting to go to them with pride. So remember who you used to be. Secondly, examine yourself first. Matthew chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. This is the whole discussion that Jesus is teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, uh, take the log out of your own eye first. Then you'll be able to see clearly to help your brother take the speck out of his eye. The humble man is the man who says, I've got a log in my eye and I need to remove that. I need to be able to see clearly before I go to my brother. So examine yourself first. Embrace gentleness is the third thing you need to do. When you think about admonishment, you think about, okay, I need to come with him with all this strength and all this, hey, I'm admonishing you. Um, Understand that gentleness is relying upon God's strength to do what his word alone can do. It's not you and your strength. It's not you and the volume of your voice. It's the content of God's word that is going to win your brother. Galatians chapter 6, verses 1 and 2. If anyone is in a trespass, you who are spiritual should restore such a one in a spirit of gentleness. Admonition, admonishment, those things can go hand in hand with gentleness. There's no rule that says that you have to set aside gentleness to admonish somebody. So embrace gentleness. Fourthly, point the person to their heart. It's not about get within the line. That's not the issue. The issue, as we know, and everything else here is with the heart. Acts chapter 5, here's a really good example. Ananias and Sapphira, early church, Jerusalem, they had property that they sold. They bring some of the proceeds of the sale of that property, and they lay it at the feet of the disciples, the apostles. That's a good thing. What was not good was what they represented it as. They misrepresented the quantity as the entire sale or more of the entire sale than it really was. And look at the way Peter replies in verse 3 of chapter 5. He says, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? Peter went right at the heart. Fifth thing you want to keep in front of you is biblical repentance for that person. Help that person see what biblical repentance looks like. 2 Corinthians 7, verse 11. We talked about this in the disciplines uh, last fall. There's a vindicating of yourself. This is no longer a part of me. This practice is no longer a part of who I am. There's an indignation over being unruly. I am truly grieved. I am disgusted with myself with the way I live in this area of my life. And it is going to move me towards repentance. There is a fear. There is a reverence for God that I have. As I consider the way God presents himself in Scripture, That gives me a sober view of myself and what I should live like. And I'm going to draw back from stepping across those lines of his order for me. I have a longing for good fellowship with God. I want that fellowship with God. And that just is not possible when I'm consistently consistently running beyond his design for me. I'm doing this with zeal. I'm doing this with every means of grace that God has made available to me. It's taking what I have and I'm putting myself behind this. And I'm avenging the wrong. If there's any way in which I need to make this right, I am doing that. 
I am enduring the consequence. I am incurring the consequence myself. I'm not looking to shift the, the weight of the blame to somebody else. Help them understand that that is what biblical repentance from being unruly looks like. And the last thing you always want to do whenever you go to somebody with anything is you want to be clear about the grace and the power of the gospel. Romans 6. Pick your favorite verse in Romans 6. My favorite verse is verse 4. It says, Just as Christ rose again, I now have the ability to walk in newness of life. The message in Romans 6 is the, the believer has a new relationship to sin. They can turn from sin. They can walk in newness of life away from sin because Christ was raised from the dead. So keep those things in front of you when you go to admonish the brother. All right. So that's what it means to admonish the unruly. Encourage the faint-hearted. We're going to have unruly people in the midst of us, but there are also going to be faint-hearted people in our midst every day. There's probably faint-hearted people in this room right here, right now. Because we live in a mixed condition, we live in a fallen world, we live in a world that is under the curse, there are going to be things in life that cause a person to be faint-hearted. And so let's take a look at what it means to be faint-hearted. This is a compound word in the Greek. And the idea here is that the first of the two parts of the words means small, and the second word means soul. So to be faint-hearted means to have a small soul. You've got a small soul or a small spirit within you. And most likely this is um, a spirit that has been battered down because of a long series of difficult circumstances that are in a person's life. Or maybe it's the same circumstance that just is not leaving that person's life. Maybe they're married to somebody that is a very, very difficult spouse. Maybe they have a very, very difficult problem that just isn't going away, apparently. This is a person who isn't generally stuck in sin. It is a person who is bearing up well, but they are in the midst of a very long, very trying season of their life. And because of that, they have a small soul. There's very little spirit within them. They don't have a lot of vitality. They don't have a lot of joy. This is the opposite of a person who is assertive and confident and doesn't really fear anything. A person doesn't have a hard time with difficulty or challenges because everything is going well. They've seen a lot of success in their life lately. Their job is going well. Their parenting is going well. Their health is good. Everything else is going well. They're even battling well with sin. This is not the kind of person that's being described here. This is a person who becomes increasingly deflated as a difficult situation persists in their life and it becomes more and more wearing. They're still meeting with the Lord. They're still praying. They're still fellowshipping with believers. They're still active in the church. But they have a small soul because a very challenging situation persists. Sometimes that person might even begin to entertain doubts about God's concern for them and his promises for them. And because of that, begin to withdraw somewhat from the body of Christ. A couple of examples. Let's say you're in the, uh, a line of work that requires a certification of some kind in order to move beyond your current level. And it's a hard test. And you take the test, you prepare, you study, you get all ready to go, you pay to take the test, you take the test and you fail. 
So you gear up to do it again because you want to move forward in your career. And you have the same result. You study hard, and the Lord just does not give you a passing grade on the test. That person over time can find themselves in a position of having a small soul. Everybody else seems to be blowing through the test. You're taking it for the fourth time, and you're just not passing. I'm related to someone for whom that's true. My wife and I know somebody else who, who took the Arizona bar four times and did not pass any of those four times. Definitely a child of God, definitely active in the church, definitely loving the Lord, serving in many ways, but finds himself failing the Arizona bar four times. That's the kind of person who would have a small soul. Let's say you have a loved one in your family that requires quite a bit of care from you, requires a lot of energy, requires a lot of help. Maybe it's an aging parent. And maybe they don't have the kind of disposition towards you that you would want them to have towards you. They're not as thankful. They're not as grateful. Maybe they're not even born again. And they demonstrate the fruit of that even as you care for them. And their situation is not getting better. Their health is only getting worse. It's only getting more challenging. It can be faint-hearted. A person can become faint-hearted to care for them. As they persist in a situation, it's very difficult. Maybe you have family members around you who make it more challenging for you to care for them. As you are trying to use God's word in your care for them, and your other family members may or may not be believers, and they don't see clearly, and they don't see eye to eye with you in the way you're caring for them, that person can become faint-hearted. Well, the Thessalonians were faint-hearted as well. They were suffering persecution from the Jews, and this persecution wasn't going to end anytime soon. It was going to continue because the Jews saw what was happening was there was a following for this church that was growing, and it was being taken away from them, and they didn't like that. Paul writes to them in verse 14 of chapter 2 in the first letter, and he says, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen, as they did from the Jews. So Paul understands that they're suffering. He understands that their life is hard. Look at the word there in the NAS, in the middle of the verse, you endured the same sufferings. Endured means that this is a prolonged situation. This is a situation that is continuing. Paul sensed this, and that's why he sent Timothy to see them in in chapter 3. He sends Timothy to them so he can find out what's happening. In verse 2, he writes, We sent Timothy, our brother and God's fellow worker in the gospel of Christ, to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith, so that none would be disturbed by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that you've been destined for this. Let's talk about what encouragement is. And I think this part is, is really, really interesting. It's another Greek word. It's a compound word. And... The first word is para, which means close beside, like paralegal or paramedic. And the second word relates to soothing speech. So to encourage is to bring comforting words from close proximity. Comforting words from close proximity. A couple of observations about this. First, effective encouragement comes from one who is near you. If you're going to be an encouragement to somebody, you need to be near that person. It's a friend who is close beside, a friend who draws near. 
He's willing to leave his own environment. He's willing to leave his own situation, his own comfort zone, his own list of tasks. He's willing to leave all of that to get near to a guy so he can encourage him. He's not kept away from that person by his distaste for their circumstances. He's not kept away from them by the unpleasantness of their circumstances. He doesn't look at his life and say, oh, that's a mass of problems that I don't want to go anywhere near. (coughs) The encouraging one is the one who's willing to get near to the person. He is not kept away by commitments he's made in his own life, things he's added to his own schedule to make his life so busy that he can't break free to help them. You know, guys, if, if we're unwilling to enter into an unpleasant situation to walk alongside a friend, then we can't possibly provide encouragement to them. We can't possibly provide encouragement to someone who's living in a situation that we're unwilling to enter into. So we need to ask ourselves a couple of questions. One of the questions is, do I have any bias against a circumstance that would keep me from drawing near to a person? Whatever those boundaries are in your own life, is there something that keeps me from drawing near to a person? Maybe they, they live differently than you do. Maybe their vocabulary is different than you do. Maybe they're in a different decade of life than you are. And there's something in the back of your mind that says, you know, I'd rather not. It's good for us to evaluate ourselves. There are things that need to be right about us before we encourage somebody. Second thing we want to ask ourselves, have I set a level of activity in my own life that prevents me from noticing the guy who's faint-hearted? Do I always have the next thing that I'm running to? Am I always so zeroed in on what's right in front of me that I can't notice the guys who are beside me? Our ability to come alongside a brother is sometimes a function of our availability in life. It's part of what it means to be a hospitable person. You're willing to allow a person into your life. You're willing to enter into a person's life. Second thing we want to see is not only are we near somebody, but we actually have a comforting message. We have a soothing message. And I'm hoping and praying that everybody sees here more than anything else that this is a message that does two things. First of all, it acknowledges that their situation is a very challenging situation. You look at a brother, you look at a sister, and you go to them, the first thing you want to say is, I understand this has to be really, really hard. It is only by God's grace that you're still standing, you're still vertical. So you acknowledge their situation. And the second thing, which is equally essential, is it brings the gospel to that person. It brings the hope, it brings the comfort, it brings the strength of the gospel. You know, your faint-hearted friend might be a friend who's really well-rooted in the Word. They might understand the Word better than you do. But their circumstances of their life has just made it hard for them to remember this. And they need to hear a guy just tell them this. God chose you. He chose you before the foundations of the world that would be, you would be holy and blameless before him. He predestined you as adoption as sons into a relationship with himself through Jesus Christ, and he did it according to the kind intention of his will. He's lavished grace upon you so that you can walk in newness of life. Sometimes it's hard to remember those things when we're faced with something really difficult. Sometimes it's really good for a believer to be reminded of where they're going when they die. This is only going to last a lifetime, and there's an eternity after that, after you fall asleep in Christ. 
Sometimes people really need to be reminded that there is going to be a 1,000-year reign of Jesus on this earth, and believers will be there in sinless condition, worshiping and serving him, ruling with him on this earth. This is a small window into the eternity that God has already designed for you. Sometimes it's really hard to remember that when things are hard. So a couple of questions we can ask ourselves is, do I know the gospel well enough to use it as a source of encouragement to other people? Can I articulate the gospel without stumbling all over it in a way that's helpful to somebody who's faint-hearted? Can I do it in a way where I'm not preaching, where I'm not so academic about it that it's stale and dry and not helpful? Is it part of who I am? The other question is, do I regularly encourage myself with the gospel? I don't want to be going to someone else with gospel truth, telling them what they need to be thinking about, what they need to be doing, what they need to be concentrating on, if I'm not doing that in my own life with things that challenge me. My work life, my family life, my marriage, my desire for marriage if I'm not married. So you want to encourage your brother. You want to encourage him with two things. You want to encourage him with their present position in Christ and their future position in Christ. Paul puts both of those on display for us in this. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3, he said, We sent Timothy to you to strengthen and encourage you as to your faith so that no one would be disturbed by these afflictions. As to your faith, he's reminding them of the present situation that they have. He reminds them in verse 13 of chapter 2, We should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved in the Lord, here's the encouragement, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. So he's reminding them of the gospel. God has chosen you for salvation from the beginning. That is your present situation. Then he encourages them about their future situation. Chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. Just as you know how we were exhorting and encouraging and imploring so that you would walk in a manner worthy of the God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Look, this is where we're going. He's calling you into his kingdom. It's a present kingdom, but it's a future kingdom as well. Then he tells them the details on that future kingdom in chapters 4 and 5. What's encouraging in this is this is a very personal, effectual call. God called you effectually. This is not the call that's placed over all the world. This is the personal, effective call on the life of a person. God directed that right at you. He wanted you. So Paul encourages them with that. And then at the end of chapter 4, they wanted to know, they were worried, they were concerned about believers who died. Where does a believer go when they die? Um, what happens to them? What happens to us if we're still alive when Christ returns? He spends verses 15 through 18 telling them all about that. In verse 16, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. The dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds. Then look what he says in verse 18. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. When you go to somebody who's faint-hearted, you want to go to them with the power of the gospel and say, this is what God has said about the future for you. (laughs) All right, my voice needs encouragement. (laughs) 
So remember, this person is someone who's probably been in their situation for a while and they desperately need this encouragement. All right, so that's the one who's faint-hearted. The faint-hearted one is characterized by being in a situation that's an ongoing, challenging situation. It's not one who's necessarily weak theologically. It's not one who doesn't have a good foundation. That's the one who's being described in the third part of this verse, help the weak. The Greek word here is somebody who lacks in vigor and strength. Literally, the weak one is one who is lacking in strength. And the kind of strength they're lacking here is not really a physical weakness. It's not a physical strength that's missing. What's missing in their life is a strong, sound, biblical foundation. This is a person who is easily misled. This is a person who lacks discernment. They frequently, maybe even consistently, demonstrate poor judgment. They're not inclined to use scripture as they make their decisions. They have a worldview that's not informed by scripture. When they look out at the world and they see the world around them, they don't see it through the lens of scripture. This is a person who could be gripped by fear as they see a situation from a secular and not from a biblical worldview. And they fall into patterns of sin very, very easily because they lack a biblical foundation. So this person needs to be helped. And to help means to bring necessary aid to them. So to help is to bring necessary aid. There's nothing rocket science about that. But the reason why they need the help is because they lack the foundation that they need biblically to live the Christian life. Some Thessalonians were weak in their understanding of the return of Christ. They really thought Christ's return was imminent. And so they didn't really know how to live. They weren't making wise choices about how to live. And so Paul had to help them. And the way he helps them is he gives them a better foundation and a better understanding of, of what is going to take place. Mentioned chapter 4, verse 11. Make it your ambition to lead a quiet life. He provides the instruction. Attend your own business. Work with your hands. And then later in chapter 4 and in chapter 5, he talks about future events. So he strengthens their understanding of what is going to take place in the future. He gives them a clear teaching of, about the return of Christ. Let's go to chapter 5. We'll look at verse 1. Now as to the times and the epics, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. While they're saying peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them. Suddenly, like labor pains come upon a woman with child, they won't escape. Drop down to verse 11. Therefore, encourage one another and build up one another, just as you also are doing. Paul is providing truth to them that will build them up. So he tells them about Christ's return, and he gives them the instruction to build one another up. He's strengthening their foundation. This is a really big deal because the, the persecution is all around them. So the people were, were just going, oh, I'm weak. I'm going to give up. I'm just going to wait for Christ to return. And that is not the way to proceed in the face of persecution. So biblical help is most often aimed at strengthening the person's biblical foundation. That doesn't mean we don't help in a way that seems obvious if a person has a real physical need. Um, we want to come about them and help them in that physical need. 
But the physical need itself is not the primary story here. The primary story is helping the person with a foundation that may have been a strong contributor to getting them in that situation in the first place. Let's say there's a guy, he's in your life somewhere, and he is always talking about a girl. And he's saying, you know, she's gorgeous. Her face, her figure, her form, she's funny. Her hair, her hands, everything about it is just, she is great. She couldn't be better. And so this guy is just all over this. And he's talking about it all the time. He really likes her. Someday I'm going to get around to pursuing her. Our culture would say, that guy is smitten with her. That's what the culture would say, whatever the verbiage you want to use. That's what they would say. But biblically, that person is weak because he has a poor understanding of what is precious to the Lord in a woman. And what he needs is he needs to be taken to 1 Peter chapter 3, and he needs scripture open to him to show him that what God finds attractive is a chaste and respectful behavior, adornment that's not merely external, and undo a focus on appearance is what's here with the guy. 1 Peter chapter 3 talks about the hidden person of the heart, this guy is talking about all the externals on the girl, and Scripture is talking about all the things that are internal. He needs to have his strength, his foundation strengthened. That's what he needs. So a couple of questions. First, am I discerning enough to understand when my friend is weak? Can I recognize when my friend is weak? You're in a conversation with somebody. Maybe it's in this room. Maybe it's in the car. Maybe it's somewhere else. Maybe you're at the gym. And he's talking about his time. He's talking about his job. He's talking about his money. He's talking about a relationship. He's talking about something in his family. Do you have a listening ear that's able to recognize when his comments in that area of his life seem to recognize a weakness in his understanding of God's design for that area of his life? So are we discerning? Are we listening? I just want to encourage you. When you're in a conversation with somebody, it's so easy to want to talk. And I... My wife has been helping me understand this. Uh, it is easy to want to talk in a conversation, but so much benefit comes from just actually listening to somebody. Not with a judgmental ear, you're looking for every flaw in their conversation, but you're just listening to how well they're doing. And be listening to, is this person showing some sign of weakness in his life? How can I come alongside and help him in a way that's really winsome? And the second thing is, do I understand their root need? The root need is a, a clear biblical understanding in this area of their life. It's not the, the $75 that they're short for rent this month. It's the reason you got there is because of a poor understanding of stewardship or whatever else the circumstance is. So that's helping the weak. So you're going to have a specific instruction to the one who is unruly, a specific instruction to the one who is faint-hearted and a specific instruction to the one who is weak. Here is an instruction that applies to everybody and that's that we be patient with all. The Greek word here means that you're long-tempered, you're long-suffering. You're refusing to retaliate with anger. You're refusing to respond with anger when you're in a situation with somebody. The person who is patient understands Philippians 1, 6, that God is in the process of completing the work that he began in the life of every believer. 
He's in that process. He's in that process first and foremost with me. And first and foremost with you. As we consider the one around us and we consider our patience and our need to be patient with them, we first consider that God has us on a trajectory where he's going to take us when he is ready for us. We're at the place where he's going to take us home. And we are slowly, daily, on a process of getting there. And there's much that needs to be done. So we need to recognize, first and foremost, that it's God who is at work and God who is controlling the sanctification process in each believer. What patience means is that you're willing to walk with a person as long as that person needs to be walked with to help them. And that can be more easy when the person is a faint-hearted person. It's easier to hang in there with someone who's faint-hearted and they're in a difficult situation. But we need to be patient with the unruly one. We need to be patient with God's grace at work in them over time to step back within the lines that God has for them, back within the order that God has for them. It can be a challenge to be patient with the weak one as they slowly grow in their understanding of a good biblical foundation for how to live their life. The patient one is the one who waits and waits and waits in that process. When you think about patience and the need for patience, it's always good for us to remember, I am an instrument in God's hands. I'm not on my own mission here. I'm on God's mission. It's his mission. I'm an instrument in his hands. And it's his discretion to use me however he wishes. So those are the four instructions. We want to be admonishing people. We want to be encouraging people. We want to be helping people. We want to be patient people all of those around us. One of the important things to see in all of this is that these are not four distinct categories. There's a lot of overlap in these categories. For example, a person could be a weak person that brings a circumstance into their life because of a poor decision they made. And then because that's an enduring result of their poor decision, they become faint-hearted. They're a believer, but they're faint-hearted. You might find yourself in a conversation with someone who's a younger believer and they're a little bit weak. And within the same conversation, you're finding at one moment they're demonstrating that they don't have a deep foundation, so they're kind of weak. And at the same time, they're being unruly because they're just charging ahead. It's kind of a result of their weak foundation, their, their poor foundation. So it's not as if there's four distinct separate categories of people. There's a lot of overlap between all of them. So this is God's design for us. Um, You'll find yourself dealing with all three different kinds of people and God has for us to very clear instructions on how we're to live with them. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for its truth. Lord, I pray that you would impress from this time together your truth on the minds of my friends here today. I pray that they would be encouraged. I pray that they would be strengthened. Lord, I pray for the one who is unruly, that you would grant them your grace to see that unruliness. I pray for the one who is faint-hearted, Lord, in circumstances that continue. I pray that your grace would sustain them. I pray for us that we would be ones that want to come alongside that person well. Lord, I pray for the one who feels as though he's weak, Lord, that he would be encouraged that your word is right before him. That is the place we go to become strong. And I pray that you would make us the kind of people who want to be in the lives of our brothers, 
so we can benefit from them and they can benefit from us. I pray for them today, Lord, as we head back into our homes and our households, as we head back into work next week, Lord God, that you would grant us by your grace to do that well. We praise you in Christ's name.